What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and in the mind of everyone else in the real estate and investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and your behavior to get control of your thought process, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are, guys, in uh, episode number 22. Last week, episode 21, it was a Q&A session and I was answering a number of questions. And um, so this week I'm going to be dealing with resourcefulness in real estate investing and how you can get the most out of your property deal. And I'm also going to be answering a question of the week. And it's a new segment that I'm bringing in. So I hope you find it useful and I hope that it encourages you guys to send me some questions because I do enjoy answering your questions. It's Friday the 25th of September, and I'm actually getting ready to head home for the weekend. But then I just remembered, gosh, I better go and record the podcast. So with my son, my baby son, Dominic is four weeks old already. And um, it's just a bit crazy at home at the moment. And I'm, I'm starting to get a bit forgetful and stuff. So I'm in that stage where I really kind of have to get my head down and um, and concentrate. Just I have actually been reading a book and I thought I would recommend give you a quick book recommend because it's really I'm finding it very good. It is called Atomic Habits by James Clear and it's all about establishing habits that will make you a more effective uh, person, a better better at pretty much everything, whatever it is that you want to be good at. And uh, so definitely recommend that you should go and check it out. Quick update on the Facebook group. We're at 223 members. And again, with the baby at home and everything like that, it's just been a bit crazy. And so I've been a bit tardy in terms of uploading to the group. So my apologies for that. I am going to be getting back to it very soon. Um, I'm starting to get things under control. So just to get into the episode this week, um, talking about resourcefulness and resourcefulness by that, I'm just, I thought to myself, what do you guys want? You guys are looking for the most possible value that you can get um, from listening to these episodes. And the couple of the questions that I've been getting, it has led me to kind of believe that this would be a worthwhile topic to kind of get into. But first, let us go into question of the week. I have a question from our listener, Lucas, and Lucas asked me um, this afternoon, actually, what w he was asking about one of the previous episodes that I did. And I mentioned that the phasing of housing estate, if you're doing a development, a housing estate where you're building sort of lots of, say, individual houses or detached houses, that is much, much easier to cash flow than it is to do, say, an apartment building. And the reason for that is because you can build a couple of units and sell them and get the money in for those and pay down some of your debt and then get on to the next stage of the development, which might be another five or whatever it houses further into the development. And um, one of the benefits of that, obviously, is that you're, you're getting cash in, whereas with an apartment building, it's different. You have to kind of fund the almost the entire thing. And he was asking me, why not do stage payments? Because it's something that, you know, you see in uh, throughout Europe and various parts of the world that, you know, the, the developer expects you to fund throughout the project as it's getting built. And so we wanted to know why not, why isn't there stage payments instead to kind of help you cash flow that? And I thought, yeah, it's a good enough question. Let's get into some of the answers. First of all, as I mentioned, cash flowing a 
residential project, like a you know housing scheme, those are quite easy to do because the, the projects go up in a phase. You have different teams working on it. So you'll build your foundations and then the team who built the foundations move to the next plot. And then the guys start doing the brickwork. Um, and so, you know, there's a constant movement. Then the windows are going in in one house and the brickwork is going on in the other house and the roof is going on in another house. So you have different teams working on different sections and the house, you know, the first house will be built first. A couple of weeks later, you might be finishing off the second house and the third house. And you can start getting people in actually moving into a fully completed house whilst you might have, say you're building 20 houses, you might actually have, you know, 15 houses that have not even started digging the foundation, but you could have all of the money in for five of those houses fully paid and that'll help you keep your cash flow under control. Now, as I mentioned, you go into an apartment building. One of the reasons why you might see big, big real estate, uh, big, sorry, big um, housing estates is for that very reason. And one of the downsides of buying in a very big housing estate that's under construction is that you'll often find that a year or two after you've moved into the house, you're still seeing the big cement lorries full of dust and driving past your front door. And you might often find that the that the driveway that you're or the, uh, the the estate road is not finished. It's the original surface and that they're expecting to continue to use this kind of mucky surface until such time as the trucks and all that are finished. And then they'll lay a final coat and the project will be handed over to the local authority or whatever. So that is the housing scheme and why it is so attractive to house builders to do that. Apartment buildings they're more glamorous and you can go into the city centre and you can get higher density and all that. But you need deep pockets to do an apartment building because say you're doing, you know, I mean, I know we're looking at a couple of different projects around the place and you might have one that's 32 apartments. You might have another that's sort of, say, 85 apartments. And that is a big block that you're building. And you've got to do a foundation. Usually you're going to be talking about, say, underground car parking. And if you're putting in any kind of excavation of the ground, the costs start to shoot up really, really quickly. And that is because you just don't know what's in the ground. You could find that you have to bring in explosives to take out a whole load of um, you know, granite rock or something like that. Or you've got to get in these big rock breakers. All of that stuff is extremely expensive and it's completely unknown. You just do not know what is below the ground when you're starting out. And so you really have no idea what this is going to cost you. At least when you're not building a basement, you know pretty much what's going to happen above the site, above the ground, but you do not know what's happening below the ground. And so big apartment buildings tend to have a large basement for your car parking and your bin storage and all of that stuff and that is expensive and you have to do the entire basement which can be many many millions of um, of whatever currency you're dealing in before you we can even start building the block itself and then you go on up with the block and it has to be almost completely finished in its entirety before people can start driving into the basement safely before you've got all of the cranes removed and all of the stuff. Now there might be small finishes, you might be still painting in part of the building and stuff, but the majority of the work is completely finished before you can start selling. So that is why an apartment building is really, really expensive. You might have to borrow 30 million from a bank in order to fund all of that. And that is a big amount of money. Whereas housing project of the same size, a 30 million housing project, you might only ever have to borrow 6 million or something like that. 
and you can phase it over that period. So think about the borrowing of six versus the borrowing of 30. And that's the risk as well, because with a housing project, you can get into it um, and you can decide, oh, the market's looking a bit shaky now. Let's just stop all the work and let us get into this. Let's just wait and see what happens. So you're not going to get caught in the middle of a construction project if you don't want to. You finish what you're doing and then you wait for the market to recover. With an apartment building, you just do not have that luxury. You can't sell anything until the building is complete. So even if the market gets shaky, you're sitting on a hole in the ground and you've got a big, huge borrowings. You've got to complete that and then you've got to deal with the difficult market. So that is another reason why that is a risky. So the next question then is, why not do these stage payments? And this is something that I'm familiar with. It depends, obviously, you know, wherever you're listening to now, you're going to have possibly different, you know, situation legally and whatever. And that is something that, um, you know, I'm not going to get into all of the detail, but certainly here in this country, Ireland, where I'm from, you will generally not do stage payments because until you receive your uh, title deeds, the bank are not going to release the mortgage to you. And if you're stage paying for a building, it usually means say you're paying, say you're buying an apartment for, we'll say 300,000. The stage payments will usually be up to maybe 70% at the end of the project. So you have a final payment of say 30% when the building is finally ready to hand over to you. How are you going to fund 200 grand out of your own pocket up to that point. This is the reason why it doesn't really work. Mortgages are needed by the majority of people to fund 80%, say, or even 90% of the purchase price that they're going for. Uh, you have your 10% deposit saved or 20%, whatever it might be, you're borrowing 80%. In the event of stage payments, you're probably looking at having to fund 80% before you're actually receiving the keys to the building. And so no bank is going to lend you that money. And even if you put a deposit down on a development, um, on a house or something like that, that money cannot be spent by the developer because it's usually sitting in a solicitor or a lawyer's escrow account and it can't be touched until all it is is just a show of commitment, but it actually can't be touched by the, by the, by the developer themselves. And if, you know, and it's a good idea that you don't allow the developer to do that because stage payments are, are difficult. If you were to get into, we'll say, this COVID situation that we're in right now, you could have a developer go bankrupt or, you know, collapse and you've given him, say, 50% of the purchase price, but the project just uh, collapses. And now you are a creditor and you're dealing with liquidators and all this kind of stuff and you're trying to get your money back. The project may not complete for years. I've seen that actually happen in the south of Spain. When I lived in, in Spain, um, you would drive through Marbella and you would see these half-built complexes and, you know, they'd just be concrete. And there would be people still trying to get their money out of that, you know, a decade after they put the money in. So there's a whole load of reasons why you have to be careful of that. And, uh, and I actually bought an apartment in the south of Spain and I was very careful about that particular aspect. I was worried about, you know, that this this exact risk. Now, I did buy from a large, reputable um, developer, so I wasn't concerned. They were actually owned by a PLC, a, like a, a listed stock market listed company. So I wasn't particularly worried about the company going under. But I put down a deposit and then, you know, six months into it, I get this email and it's like, OK, we're now ready to receive 
the next you know payment and it was like 20 percent and i can remember you know 20 percent can be a substantial sum to have to try to come up with and i can remember going to the, my bank and actually borrowing the money from my own home like doing an equity release on my property my primary property in ireland in order to get this money out that i could send to spain because there was no way of raising a mortgage um on the property because it was only half built you're not going to get a mortgage now what you can do ultimately is the property is finished handed over to you then you can go off and you can get a maybe a mortgage in spain or whatever country you're buying and you use that mortgage payment to repay say the loan that you took out on your own home uh, back in ireland but these are some of the issues that you need to be worried about and you need to be concerned about and it's one of the reasons why i kind of tend to shy away from those um those kind of stage payments. One of the reasons why stage payments are sort of popular, say in the south of Spain and in any kind of a holiday destination is because usually the person who's buying is buying a second home, like a holiday vacation home, and it is not their primary residence. And, you know, if you're buying your primary residence, typically speaking, you're going to buy it with a mortgage. If you're buying a second home, a lot of the time, somebody is you know say a couple that have been living in their home for many years and they have a decent amount of equity built up in it they can go to their bank they can get an equity release and that gives them some money to go off and say buy in the south of spain and it's a way of you know enjoying your lifestyle and whatever or increasing your your investment portfolio that is quite different to having to borrow the money from the outset uh, in order to stage payment so I think that was one of the reasons why stage payments work in, in holiday things, because you don't need the mortgage to pay it. You can actually probably get it from an equity release on your own home. So anyway, uh, oh, and one final warning in that regard, I was, when I bought my home in Spain, I, I had to close it in May. And I can remember, I, I found the property in March and in May I had to close, uh, come up with the funds. And I'd been speaking to a bank in Spain about a mortgage and sure enough, the day of the closing came and the mortgage was not ready. And I was going to be getting this penal interest rate of something like 10% per month or not per month, but 10% a year, you know, charged on a monthly basis or a weekly basis for each week of delay. And, I, you know, I didn't want to have to pay that. So I said to my own bank back in Ireland, I said, you know, I need to fund this payment can you release the money to me and as soon as the mortgage comes through i'll pay it back and thankfully it was an easier time and um you know in terms of borrowing it was quite a, a loose time shall we say and i was able to do that but nowadays you just would not be able to do that and you'd end up stuck either defaulting on your purchase and maybe losing your deposit or just getting that kind of penal interest rate that they charge so lucas i hope that answers your question and now we're going to get into the main part of today's show. Let's get into the show, as Gary Vee would, would say. Um, uh, the main event today is resourcefulness. And what I was actually going to call this episode was the anatomy of a deal. And uh, really what I'm trying to do is create the most value for you guys. And a lot of questions that I get in are questions along the line of, you know, how should I pay for my first property and how should I do this and should I buy in this particular location? And there's a lot of questions that come in. And what I'm trying to get across to you guys is that if you want to be a successful investor, then you really have to think outside of the box. 
just buying a standard property that is for sale down the road from you is not going to get you very far because, well, you know, it's maybe it's not fair to say that, but, you know, you're looking, you're playing the yields, uh, we'll say, and you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, I'll buy for this and maybe I'm getting 5% yield or 10% yield or whatever it is. And that is a slow process and it's quite a passive process because you are waiting for the market to do the work for you. And what I'm trying to get across is that it's actually you who, you know, rolls up your sleeves and gets creative. And that's where real value is created. And uh, it's not always obvious. And you really have to kind of go deep and think outside the box and look at all of the different options. Now, what I have found, for example, if you look at Grand Designs, the television show Grand Designs, you'll be familiar with seeing these like beautiful projects, like amazing architectural projects. And what they'll often do is they'll take like an old fire station or an old pumping station and turn it into this amazing luxury home. And I look at, I love this program. I, I sit there for hours watching these things and I kind of say, wow, you know, I never would have seen the value that he's created there. I mean, you know, to, to look at something and turn it into something really special, that is, that takes skill. And, you know, beautiful building can be created from just being creative and thinking outside the box and being resourceful. You, you know, design is never that obvious. That kind of that kind of winning design is never that obvious. But it's not just about the design. So you don't have to you don't need to be the architect to figure this out. It's also how you structure a deal. Structuring a deal by that, I mean, you know, you can actually be very creative in terms of the lease. You can be very creative in terms of attracting, say, the tenant in. You can give them, you can actually structure a deal for a tenant so that they actually, it's a win-win. It's not just them paying you rent. You're actually giving them a very compelling reason to move in. And I'm going to go into a couple of deals today that I've done in the past or I've been involved in that did exactly this. And I think they're quite interesting. So I thought I'd, I'd share them. There's a thing called arbitrage, which I've spoken about before. And that is one of the things I'm going to be talking about today. That is where you take something that is valued at a certain price and you look at it in a different way and it has an entirely different price. And so today I'm going to be looking at two small deals and two big deals. And um, the smaller deals will be more relatable to a lot of the guys that are starting out here. But the bigger deals will be quite interesting to anyone who's kind of more experienced and um, who's kind of interested in how to create some real serious money. So the first deal I'm going to go back to, I bought this back in 2005 and I've actually, I've mentioned this particular property deal, I think in one of my earlier podcasts, but it was a commercial retail unit here in Ireland and it was about four, I can't remember exactly the details, but I think it was about 4,300 square feet or we'll say approximately 430 meters squared. And it's quite that that is very, very large for a neighborhood shopping center or to use the American term, a strip mall. Um, those places tend to be, you know, in a neighborhood, you usually have apartments above and there'll be a, a number of shops on the ground floor and it'll be kind of a small neighborhood centers, how we call them here in Ireland. You'll have a, you know, you'll have a convenience store. You might have a. Uh, like an off license or you might have some sort of a takeaway shop like a Chinese takeaway or a pharmacy. There's all of those. So I think you kind of get the picture. I was looking at this unit of 4,300 square feet and it was much bigger than a typical unit. Typical units would be 800 to 1,000 square feet. 
So this was about four times the size. But because of that, the price per square foot that you'd be charging would be much, much lower. And typically, a unit of that size is only going to be suitable for, say, a carpet showroom or something. And those guys would expect to pay a very low rent of, you know, 15 euro per square foot or, you know, maybe 20. And because of that, the price of the property was very, very cheap. The price of the property of the sales price was based on an assumption that the rent that you were going to be able to achieve from it was only going to be between 15 and 20 euro per square foot. And it was just it was just too big for anyone to go and pay large, you know, the, the 35 or 45 that you would have kind of hoped to achieve. It was too large. It was going to be no takers. So myself and my business partner, we bought this property and we started speaking to tenants and we thought, you know, why don't we have a conversation with a few of them and see, is there any takers at 4,300 square feet? It was unlikely and we kind of knew it from the outset, but we thought, you know, before we get started, let's just see who's out there. And sure enough, not many takers at all. There was very few people interested. All, all of them commented that it was, it was way too big. Nobody wanted all that kind of responsibility. And, um, and also one of the reasons why is that when a, when a place takes over a, a unit like that, they want to fit it out. And the bigger it is, the more it's gonna to cost to fit out. You're gonna to have to tile it, you're gonna to have to carpet it, you're going to, whatever it is that you have to do. There's just so much more that you're gonna to have to pay for. Also the, the glazing and all of that kind of stuff, all of that costs money. So the bigger it is, the more it's gonna cost. So they all wanted it to be smaller. So myself and my partner, we decided that we would go off and get permission. Um, we needed permits and things like that. We went off and got a permit to divide the unit into three different units. And the three different units were three different sizes. I think the smallest unit was about 800 square feet. And then the other units were both around 15, 1600 square feet or something. They were still quite large, but um, it was it was much more manageable. And so what we um, what we managed to do anyway, we, we, we got the permission. It took a couple of weeks or maybe a month or two to get that. And then what we had to do was we had to open up the floor um, because this one unit had one electricity supply board. It had one toilet outlet. It had one water pipe coming into the building and it had no subdivision and it had a single door. So what we had to do was create this three, uh, three times. So it meant digging up the floor, the concrete floor, putting down new pipes. It meant putting in new water, water meters. It meant putting in three different electricity supply boxes. And then we had to go and split the units with three different, with, you know, with a wall. And then we also had to break open uh, an area so that you could actually get in and out of the building um, of each unit to, to check it out. Typically what we were doing back then is we would just put up a bit of hoarding at the front, um, a big, you know, sort of plywood hoarding. And that would be all we would do. And we would just cut a door into it and we wouldn't have to pay for a shop front because particular uh, occupiers uh, like tenants, they would have specific type of shop front that they want to do. So if we put in a shop front for them, we might find that they're taking it out. So it was pointless doing that. So once that was all done, suddenly the interest was there and we, we suddenly found that we had gone, we had bought the units on the assumption of 15 to 20 euro per square foot. Suddenly now we were quoting 35 to 45 for the units that were there. The small 800 square foot unit 
we managed to get 45 euro uh, a foot for that and then the 15 and 1300 whatever it was exactly those were getting closer to 35 to 37 euro per square foot and what that meant was that we had effectively doubled our uh, rental income and that meant that we had basically doubled the amount of money that we could get from this building so in the end what we did is we put the three units up for sale we thought perhaps one single investor would come along and buy all three units but in the end it was actually better uh, individual uh, investors came along and bought the units on their own and one chap came along and actually wanted to put in a uh, a bookies or a, um, a bookmaker shop and they actually wanted to own their own unit and they offered this huge price that we couldn't believe but you know being in the bookies business i guess those guys could afford it and in the end we and i think we made about two and a half times the amount of money that we had paid for the unit and it was a very decent sum of money but but what was even better than that is because we had borrowed so much of the money to actually buy this unit the actual return on the money that we on the cash that we had put into the deal was closer to 10 or 15 times our money so it was a very very uh, good deal and that was just simply a bit of arbitrage and you know you don't have to be a rocket scientist to do this you just have to look at it in a different way and kind of work out it's one of the reasons why people buy big houses and split them into say six apartments you'll get more from the six apartments than you'll get from the one big house and that is exactly what um, what we did there so let's get into the second project and I'm not going to go into as much detail on this one it was a former skating hall and it was in a village outside of Dublin and um, it was one of these old halls I think the building was probably close to 100 years old and it had these big huge high ceilings and it would have originally been maybe a dance hall or something like that and then it had been turned into a skating hall and over the years you know the different uses and stuff they fall out of fashion this old skating hall had very high ceilings it had it was just an old-fashioned building and we decided what we would do is split it into another neighborhood center but it had a kind of I think it had some sort of a listing so it, it, we couldn't we couldn't demolish the building we weren't permitted to demolish but we could split it up and things like that so what we did was we put two large retail units on the ground floor and then between them we had a little lobby with an elevator shaft that went up to the upper floor so these big high ceilings that were in the we put we put a floor across that and we used the um, the upper floor to put in three units and i think what we put in we put a dentist in one of the units we put a doctor's surgery in another and we put a like a little hair salon in the third so you got the lift up to that floor or you could go up the stairs and then on the ground floor opening straight out to the public was a pharmacy on one side and a grocery store type you know convenience that also had a uh, a post office so it was a very very popular um, it was a very, very popular location and it was right next to this, this uh, it was right on the coast and it had a big car park in front of it. So it was very popular. Now, the only problem with that was our construction budget went over in that case because we were building with a hundred year old building or something close to a hundred years. You just don't know what you're going to find. And as we were starting to kind of hack into the old walls and stuff, we suddenly found that they were not structurally sound. 
um, to go and take an extra floor and things like that. So the budget went a fair bit over there and we didn't make quite what we were hoping to make. And I mean, it washed its face and we made a little bit of a profit, but it was a bit of a disappointment in the end, I can remember. And that is one of the drawbacks to buying uh, an old property is you really, it's kind of a, it's like rolling a dice, whether or not you're going to end up with a, um, a construction project that makes a lot of sense. All right, getting into the large projects. And um, I think you're going to find these interesting, even if they're hard to relate to because there's kind of sums involved. But these were projects that I was involved in um, through different kind of people. And one of them was an old factory warehouse building. And it was it was a building that was built by a huge manufacturing company that used to be located in Ireland. And they closed down, as, as often happens with these companies, you know, their strategy, their corporate strategy changes and they decide that they're going to move all of their manufacturing to China or something like that. And that is what happened in this case. And they closed down their operations and they were just stuck with this building that they had built for themselves. Now, the building was very big. The land, I think there was about, this was close to 30 acres of land or something like that. And they they had a manufacturing warehouse on it where they would you know, create the stuff that they were selling. They also had this administration office area and a front of house where they would bring people in and they'd entertain them in, you know, meeting rooms and stuff like that. And then they had a distribution part of the building, which was to the to the rear. And it had loading bays where the big trucks would come in, they'd back up and they'd be filled. And so it was it was quite a big operation um, when it was when it was operational. And the problem with that is when you go and try to sell this building, it was built specifically for that company. So it's not necessarily going to be easy to find somebody to come along and actually take over. The, the best thing about this was that this 25 acres of land that was sitting at the back, that was there for their expansion that they thought they might need at some point. But of course, then it changed and they were getting out of the country. I think this the total cost of the site and the building and everything like that was close to 45 million or something like that, that this big company had funded and they were hoping to get that back. But there was absolutely no takers for it at all. And so along we came, the, the, the kind of the people that I was involved with at the time, and we managed to get that for 25 million. So about 20 million below the value of the site itself, um, of what, what these guys had spent. And immediately got to work on thinking outside the box because, you know, there's nobody coming, coming there's nobody who's going to come along and rescue you and take over your building as it is. So you got to think outside the box. So what we immediately thought was, okay, this space at the back with all of the loading bays, that is ideal for a logistics operation. So we went off and we started to approach a lot of the big logistics companies. And we started to kind of think about what would work for those guys. Now, in a lot of the new warehouses, they, they, they expect a ceiling height of a certain amount. And they have these forklift trucks that can go very, very high. They, the racks are much, much higher than what it used to be able to do. And so what we did was, uh, the good thing about working with large warehouse buildings is they're not actually that expensive. They're like a big Meccano set. It's all, you know, pieces of steel that you can extend and stuff. So we increased the height of the ceiling in this particular part of the building so that we could put in these higher forklift trucks for stacking um, all of their products and put it out there for sale. And we managed to find one of those 
big logistics companies. Uh, I don't remember who it was in the end, but you know, nowadays you might be trying to find somebody like Amazon to go and take this over. And uh, they came in and they bought that section of the building with the new heightened roof for 12 million. And we had to put in a dividing wall and increase the height of the, the building, which cost a little bit of money, but it was nowhere near, um, I think it was probably no more than about 1.6 million or something like that for of work to be done here sold that off for 12 million it had its own entrance and it had its loading bays and all of that kind of stuff so that was a nice deal because immediately you're kind of paying down your 25 million loan you're paying down 12 of that next we turned our attention to the manufacturing plant facility and this area was combined with the front of house um, admin function and we started talking to tech companies around the area and at the time that this was all being talked about, tech companies were being quoted all these um, rents for renting an office. And um, we managed to go and identify one of these guys that uh, actually had a conversation with them. Rather than dealing with agents and, and things like that, we actually met them and we had a conversation. And we just wanted to find out what exactly did they want themselves? What are they looking for if they weren't looking for a rental property? If they wanted to buy, what would it need to have? And so they gave us a list of their expectations and their technical guidance and all of that kind of stuff. And we just went off and said, we can do this for you. And we put together a scheme, we got an architect on board. We got an architect that specializes in workplace and very, very fancy kind of workplaces for tech companies. And we got them to do this really interesting proposal that we knew would be interesting to these people. And they fell in love with it straight away. And the great thing about it is it wasn't a huge amount of work because you're dealing with mostly a big high ceiling. So, you know, you buy an old warehouse and you've got these high ceilings and you're able to do a lot of stuff on the lower floor and you're able to put in all of these kind of pods and you can make create mezzanine structures and stuff. And it doesn't take a lot of work because just bolting it down to the floor. All of that was done. And we I think what we did was these guys would have paid an equivalent of so much in rent. And we just basically said to them, look, we'll sell it to you at a 10% yield. So 10x the annual rent that we would normally charge. And that worked out at 17 million. So went off and sold it to them. Um, it was fully furnished and fully fitted out. Um, very snazzy and very cool. And it worked out at about a 4 million profit for us at that stage. We'd paid down now the entire 25 million and we had profit left over. We'd had to spend some of it on the fit out of their, you know, furnishing their units and stuff. But what was amazing about this now is that we had almost completely paid off the original loan and we had 25 acres of land left. And so that 25 acres was where the real, what we call the cream was left. And so what we went off and did was we designed a scheme to build small own door warehouses. So, you know, lock up units. And we had quite a lot of land to go and build this in. And what actually, there was a road on the other side of the land. And across on, from that road, there was another small uh, industrial estate that had similar kind of units. So we created a new entrance at the far side of the building or of the land that had its own separate entrance. So now the people that we had sold to the tech company they weren't going to have traffic coming in to go to the back. They were they had their own completely separate road in. And so there was no kind of drawbacks for them as far as they were concerned. 
And we went on and I, I can't remember exactly, but I think the profit for that scheme came in at around 10 million or something like that. So we had taken 25 million purchase price, repaid all of that within about a year and a half, I think. And then we went on to make about 10 million profit from the scheme, um, the scheme at the back. And again, going back to the conversation earlier, um, by phasing those warehouses, it was very, very easy to kind of borrow a small amount, build a couple of units, then borrow some more. We weren't doing the entire 25 acres in one failed swoop. And um, so that just gives you an example of, you know, resourcefulness on a grand scale and the kind of money that can be made from it. There's another project that I want to go into, and it is a project that I worked on in the Middle East. And um, I was involved in this project and it went on for quite a few years, but the kind of money that the that the partners made in the end, I wasn't personally um, invested in this project, but I was kind of on the team. And what actually happened here is the the guys that bought the building, or bought the land, they actually had a full lease in place before they bought the building, uh, before they bought the land. So they had secured a tenant for a huge building before they had actually paid for the land that the building was going to be built on. And what they did in this particular case is we went off and met with the um, the owners of, we were talking to a big financial institution and the financial institutions, they have all of these technical guidance documents and of the standard that they expect. When you're talking to big multinationals um, that have, you know, offices all over the world, those guys, a lot of the time, they want to have a office that is the same, say, in New York City as it is in in Africa or as it is in the Middle East or as it is in London or as it is in Germany. All of, they, they want each employee to feel like that they're being treated equally. And it's a big problem for those guys if somebody comes along and says, oh, we don't have the same quality of offices as you have back in your, you know, back in London or whatever. And... That is a problem that these guys try to overcome. So they have these technical guidance standards. And what we did is we went off and we spoke to them and we got a copy of them and we reverse engineered our scheme so that it was exactly the same as what they would typically look for. So when they were getting out their you know, checklist and saying, okay, does it have this? Yes, does it have this? Every single thing that they look for, we had designed into the building. And we had designed it on paper and we said, we will deliver this to you. We just need you to commit to the lease in advance. So they saw that we had designed the building and they then the only thing that they needed was that they had some kind of a veto over the location. We would not be able to build this building anywhere. It had to be a suitable location for this particular uh, institution to go to. But that wasn't difficult. I mean, the, this was during kind of the, the recession. And because it was during the recession, there was quite a bit of land available. And so one of the benefits, which you've got to think about, is the win-win deal. And in this particular case, what, what actually swung this deal for us was the fact that this institution was in six different buildings in six different leases um, in the city that they were located. And every time you wanted to meet somebody, you had to get in your car and you had to drive some other destination where they could kind of uh, had another office. And it was very, very inefficient. And every time they tried to move into a single building, the rents were just prohibitive. And they just, 
they were stuck in the situation where they felt that they had no choice but to continue to rent the six different buildings. And we came along to them and made this proposal that was just very, very compelling for them. We said that we would design the building to their technical standards. It would stand up to the scrutiny of their New York office and various places around Asia and stuff. In addition to that, we, we would do it um, and we would build it to at a cost that didn't cost them anything. We would include the fit out in there. Normally, when a big institution moves into a building, they have to fund the fit out themselves. And that can be a huge outlay. In this particular case, I think it was an 11 million dollar fit out. So we said to them that we're going to build the building to your specs. We're going to allow you move out of six different buildings into this one. We are going to give you um, the fit out and we're going to do it all to your standards, desks and everything. The only thing we didn't put in was computers, live equipment like that. And artwork was the only thing that we didn't put in. Everything else was was all kind of put in. And we did a beautiful lobby, beautiful lifts, everything like that. It was very, very high standard. And these guys, they were able to do that at no huge outlay that was going to hit their profit and loss. When they looked at this project from our point of view, they were sort of saying, wow, this is a win-win. We're moving out of six buildings, we're moving into one large building, and it's done to our standards, and there's no fit-out cost. That is going to be spread over, say, the, the, the term of the lease, 15 years. And one final thing that we did was we actually gave them the ability to expand their operation. So we built, I think we built 18 floors in this building and they were occupying, I think, 12 of those floors initially. So there was six floors left over. And of those six floors, we were giving them rights to take a floor at a time at certain dates. And so anything that we did with our leases had to be figured around that. So we would do maybe a short term lease or something like that. But it meant that we fully secured the um, the tenant and that would actually make the whole deal viable straight away. And then those extra six floors that we had as they rented them or if they didn't want them and if they decided to release them to us, we had certain dates that that would happen and then we could put our own tenants in. And again, all of the cream, all of the profit in the deal was in those extra six floors that we managed to get. So we basically had six free floors to rent to create the extra value. Now that went on, that, that's what I mean by a win-win. And that deal was most definitely a win-win. And that institution actually approached us and asked us to do it again for them in other locations around the world. It was all done in and around the recession. So this was during a time when a lot of people just were inactive. And so this was a particularly interesting time. Anyway, that's it, guys. I hope you enjoyed this um, talk. I hope it opened your eyes to the possibilities out there that if you're if you're just looking to buy a property, um, you know, that's for sale around the corner and it's just, you know, your standard property, you just turn around and rent it. That's all fine and well, but you're not going to make the big returns from that kind of activity, you need to figure out how you're going to add additional value. And that is something that I thoroughly recommend that you kind of go off, think outside the box. You know, one way to actually do this, believe it or not, is, you know, these puzzle books that you can buy, those are great ways for you to kind of think outside the box and figure out problem solving and stuff. And if you do that kind of stuff, it gets your mind 
thinking, how to solve problems and how to create and how to think more resourcefully. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm. Uh, that's it for episode number 22. Thank you so much for listening. My number one ask, as always, is that you please stop what you're doing right now and go and leave a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you're listening. It's the only way that this podcast is going to get out to a wider audience. Um, every time you leave a review, it triggers something in the algorithm and it shares it out to more people. So this, if you're getting any value from this, that is what I ask of you. That is your way of maybe paying me back a little bit. Um, also, if you have any further questions, I'm, I'm going to do this question of the week again next week. So if you guys just drop me an email or if you drop an email to podcast at behindthefacade.fm, that will get to me. And also, if you want to join the Facebook group, uh, the Behind the Facade community, that is a great way to connect with me. And I do these live videos where I talk about, I answer questions and I go, you know, anyway, it's well worth checking it out. And lastly, if you want to go and sign up to my newsletter, go to my website, www.gavinjgallagher.com forward slash go. That'll bring you straight to the newsletter sign up. And finally, PropTech TV, that's the name of my YouTube channel. If you want to check that out, all of this content ends up there. Um, video format, sound bites, things like that. So until next week, people, have a great week. Mm-hmm.